Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Since its creation in 1985, one of the most important conservation tools in America has been the Conservation Reserve Program. Over time, as CRP numbers have gone up and down, bird numbers have tracked up and down, producing almost a mirror image of each other. While CRP has recently been at an all-time low in acre numbers, just within the last two years, the program is on the rise again. Thanks in large part to the last farm bill, which has an escalating acre cap, improved soil rental rates, which were improved during the last sign-up last year, and a broader realization that CRP acres are indeed working acres and should no longer be referenced as idled or set-aside acres. Rather, these CRP acres are working to produce cleaner waters, healthier soils, quality wildlife habitat, and stabilizing rural producers' incomes on the toughest of farm acres, in addition to helping sequester carbon for a more resilient climate. While there are a variety of CRP practices open year-round, specifically around the continuous CRP program, right now, through March 11th, is a unique window of opportunity for a general CRP sign-up. And then following that will be a grassland CRP sign-up that runs from April 4th through May 13th. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about a bread and butter program for pheasants and for quail, the Conservation Reserve Program. And I'm excited to welcome to the podcast two New participants in On the Wing podcast, Kristen Weber, a Pheasants Forever Precision Ag and Conservation Specialist in South Dakota, who also happens to be a farmer, as well as full-time farmer, rancher Jeff Lochner, a producer from South Dakota. Uh, Kristen, Jeff, thank you very much for uh, joining On the Wing podcast to talk about our single favorite program that's, uh, you know, Pheasants Forever was born in 1982. And shortly after that, the Conservation Reserve Program was born in 1985. And, and uh, we, we um, always connect the dots between our favorite game birds and CRP. So really appreciate you joining this conversation. Let's start with um, a little bit of background on, on who each of you are, where you're from. I mentioned that you're both farmers. Um, let's talk. I want to talk a little bit about that farmers, ranchers, producers. Um, but let's start with who you are and, and uh, what you do. And we'll start with Kristen. Thanks, Bob. So I'm Kristen Weber. I am the precision egg and conservation specialist for South Dakota. I live um, by Western Springs here in the central part of the state. I grew up not very far from where I live now. Um, I graduated from SDSU with a degree in egg business. Um, Currently, we have two kids, um, do full-time farming, two jobs between me and my husband as well. Um, and we have a German short hair pointer and two labs. One's re- semi-retired, um, 
but we like to get out in the in the field and go hunting in the fall so and you you mentioned um you also do some farming what do you what do you grow uh we're on a corn soybeans wheat rotation we're starting to work in cover crops um and also a little bit of alfalfa on some a piece of ground that's got some saline issues we're going to try there nice nice uh, Jeff, thank you very much for, for taking time aside to, to join this conversation. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, your background and, and who you are. Yeah, well, thanks, uh, Bob and, and Kristen and, to, and Pheasants Forever for the opportunity to, uh, to chat with you today. Uh, this is an easy subject for me as a, as a full-time producer because uh, the conservation items and, uh, and the work that Pheasants Forever has been doing is uh, is is a big part of uh, what our operation's about, and, and I hope it continues that way. So I am a uh, uh, I am a forty year farmer rancher uh, near Westington, South Dakota, in East Central South Dakota, just uh, north of where uh, Kristen has her operation and where she lives. Uh, I've been back on the farm as I mentioned for about forty years. Before that, I was a um, a credit officer with the farm credit system in Iowa and Eastern Nebraska. I uh, did that for a few years. Uh, my dad was injured in a farm accident, so we took the opportunity to uh, to come home at that time, and he recovered from that. Uh, uh, just passed away a couple of years ago at 89, so uh, good a good move for us to get back in the area and uh, and try our hand at at, uh, at agriculture. Our operation is about uh, right at 5,000 acres, corn, soybeans, wheat, as Kristen alluded to. Uh, we also have a pretty sizable forage base with alfalfa. Um, cover crops have been a pretty important part of our, our livestock feed operation now for about four years. And uh, we do have a, a cow-calf operation around um, between three and 400 at, at very some. Uh, the personnel in our operation is consists of my wife, Myrna, and I, who's a retired uh, a clinical nurse leader. Our son, Drew, and his wife are involved in the operation, too. Uh, Drew is full-time, and uh, Chris is a physical therapist. But uh, So that's our operation. We have uh, full-time help and some seasonal help, but uh, a diversified crop and livestock farm. And, and uh, I am a third-generation, uh, fourth-generation farmer, I'm sorry, uh, and our son will be the fifth. So during um, that sort of overview of your background, you talked about being a farmer. You talked about being a rancher. You talked about being a producer and I've always, you know, whether it's writing press releases or blogs, you know, trying to reference um, how folks like you like to be talked about, you know, what, what's your preference? Do you like to be called a farmer, farmer, rancher, a producer, all the above? Does not matter? Yeah, that's a great point, Bob. I, I do uh, uh, travel a fair amount of the country. I'm, I'm involved. Uh, I serve on the board of Land Lakes, that cooperative and, some other cooperatives. So through that exposure uh, to the ag world, uh, you know, you do get a lot of different reaction. Of course, um, uh, you know, again, I mean, we we look at both sides of the operation equally because we are integrated. Uh, uh, you know, if my son were here now, he would be quick to claim that I'm, I'm more of the rancher and he's the farmer. I, I don't disagree with that, but uh, you know, the, going by the moniker as a producer, <laughs> that works for me. I, I've been called worse. <laughs> <laughs> and how long have, has your uh, your son and, and his wife been involved in in your operation? Uh, since uh, 2013, so um, nine years. This will be the ninth year now. Okay, having them back. What, did you expect that your son would join the family 
farming operation and or, or was that um, something that surprised you? No, uh, Drew is the youngest of four of our four adult children. And uh, we're fortunate we have three that live in the area, but our, our oldest son uh, is not involved in the operation. He lives in Texas. But uh, yeah, I mean, each, you know, as you all know, with, uh, with kids, each has their own skill set and their own wishes. And uh, we've been fortunate to, as parents, to help them make that happen. But no, we knew, uh, we knew the youngest wanted to be a farmer at a very early age. I got to imagine... You know, you mentioned being a fourth generation farmer. That's that uh, that's a special feeling of pride when one of your youngsters wants to uh, carry on that piece of the tradition, family tradition, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, I would add, Bob, that uh, uh, the the connection to agriculture, of course, is is integral to everything we do. But you know, I will mention too. Uh, I, I come from a from a long line of, of uh, pheasant hunters and, and other upland bird hunters, and I'm almost as proud of that too because we've been able to, you know, to do the things to uh, which we hope is promoting our, our bird population, and uh, you know, to see the subsequent generations now that that enjoy that sport too. Um, it just it all works hand in hand. Yeah. So you beat me to the punch. I was going to ask you if your family. Uh, like the hump it's almost sort of a um you assume it talking to anybody in south dakota that they also do a little bit of pheasant hunting um but appreciate you bringing that up is that something you know there's you mentioned some of your children don't live close is that a tradition where they come back home to the farm around pheasant opener or holidays to to chase roosters around yeah absolutely um and that string of, of events where we were fortunate enough to have family and friends gather, uh, not only at the, the South Dakota pheasant opener each year, but at other points of, of time during the season as well. That string we estimated was right somewhere between 60 and 70 years that we've been, my family had been doing that back three generations to wow. gather to hunt. Unfortunately, in 2019, with the, uh, the flooding conditions that we had in our state, Kristen's well aware of that too. Uh, that that interrupted uh, our bird population, and and uh, we saw that decline. So we weren't able to have a, a pheasant opener in 2019 and 2020, and so uh, that uh, that broke the chain. So now we have to start a new trend. <laughs> sixty years consecutive, though, is pretty, I think you said sixty years. That's pretty impressive. At least we we think it may be more. I, I a little sketchy on that. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, well, let me take a moment here and thank uh, a national partner of Pheasants Forever, OnX Hunt app. Um, OnX Hunt is the number one GPS hunting map for bird hunters. And with trusted and accurate data, including for South Dakota, you'll be able to find more birds in public land around the country. Download the app for a risk-free seven-day trial by using the code Pheasants or quail during the checkout process. And you'll also receive 20% off at onyxhunt.com. All right, as we move towards uh, the meat of the conver conversation about the Conservation Reserve Program, I want to talk a little bit. I know both of you, Kristen, you and your, your family, and then Jeff, you and yours, two operations that have you know, like you mentioned, corn, beans, and, and wheat, 
and some livestock and for sure in Jeff's case. And you also have conservation in the mix, particularly CRP practices. So I want to start with, with Kristen. I want you to tell me about sort of the philosophical approach and how you came to determine that you wanted to enroll in, in CRP on your property. And then we'll go from Kristen and then to Jeff. Um, so I think the biggest thing when we started farming in 2014, we were really focused on building back the soil health. The land that we were farming had been conventional tilled for as many years that it had been in production. So that was our main focus. Um, we just making sure to add those small grains in when we can, even if they're not the most profitable, you'll see those payouts the, the following years after that, just making sure we stayed the course with the plan that we put in place. Um, the other thing that we kind of do is just making small adjustments every year. Um, we don't want to just put in all these new practices at once and see them fail. We try to fine tune everything um, and then move on to the next step and then the next step versus overwhelming ourselves and making all those decisions. Um, and what Jeff alluded to too with the kids coming back to the farm. So I'm the third generation farmer. My husband's going on the fourth with some of the farm ground that he has with his brother. And when we started farming it was the first year uh, the first year was the year our daughter was born actually and we just really felt the need that we needed to have our kids on the farm and be raising them in that lifestyle i was mm. raised a farm kid and a lot of my childhood memories are with my dad being out in the field or out with the cows and things like that and i just wanted them to see that work ethic that he instilled in me and just that things aren't always just given to you that you have to work hard for them and have those responsibilities. Um, there's a lot of decisions to be made and um, we just wanted to be able to instill that in our children and get them involved in the farming operation. I mean, there's a lot more to it than just going out and sit, sitting in a tractor. Um, it's mm -hmm. a lifestyle really. And even if they don't come back to the farm after Jason and I decide to retire, we want them to know how to take care of the land. Um, and not just undo everything that we've built up to give them um, when we pass it on to them. So those are two of the big things um, philosophical wise that we really approached in our farming operation is soil health. And then uh, just teaching our kids land ethics, mm. I think are big, important. And, and as we've, I've had a variety of folks talk about precision agriculture Mm -hmm. on our podcast and we've done blogs and stories in the pheasants forever journal and quail forever journal and i'm going to simplify it for an audience based around you know my um understanding of it but if you every tractor nowadays has a tremendous amount of computer um well it has computer software built in to measure how much inputs right gasoline herbicides, pesticides, nitrogen put into the ground. And then that same data pumps out what you're producing, right? Yield mm -hmm. numbers. And we, we often say, turn red acres green, right? Mm -hmm. Turn the less profitable, even acres that you're losing money on into green acres, profitable acres using conservation programs. Yeah. That's what you do for a living every single day. So in, in some respect, you, you know, you're, you play the doctor, but you're also a patient, right? Yes. So, yes. so tell, tell when, me about that. Yeah. So it's, I, I kind of laugh about it now because we don't have this disagreement when, um, when every time they go down to plant, 
I'd get be get it. I just be waiting for a text from my husband. We hit those gumbo areas. The planter's plugged up. Like we're not going to get any yield out of this spot. Like it was just all these little spots in this field. Like they just are like they're always wet no matter what. Like that just plugs the planter up. When then you get sidewall compaction, then there's uneven an emergence. So then you just get lower yields on that. So I mean before this before I worked for Pheasants Forever, I worked as um, a precision egg specialist. So I had access to using all the data to do this. So I'm like, why don't we just square this field out and um, just put that stuff into CRP. Like, let's draw the lines where we're fighting these acres. And then that's what we ended up doing. So in the spring of 2020, we got some of the, the issues that we were having. Um, there was another piece that we had some erosion happening um, where it came through off an approach and we'd get big rains and it would just wash that field out and it was getting deeper and deeper. Um, so we, we took care of that. And then we planted some of these gumbo spots. And so Jason doesn't have to, to fight those spots every every spring and I have to hear about it. So it, it was a win-win for everybody. And like I said, we love hunting. It's a big part of what we do. Um, like I didn't think we'd ever have three dogs, but now we have three dogs. <laughs> and so two kids and everything else going on, it's a lot to deal with. But um, <laughs> then we also put in some tree strips like in the middle of where we put our CRP just for some cover there. Cause it was a pretty big wide open space. Um, actually two tree strips. Um, so it worked out really well. Um, I have some stories about hunting down there already, and it's only been two years. So it's, yeah, it's been a good deal. And it's, yeah. it just reduces our risk too. You know, we're not losing money on those acres. Um, and it's, it's a good selling point because I can speak from experience when I'm talking to farmers. Like when I talk to Jeff, I use that example a lot. It's like, mm. I did this on my own farm. So I believe in what we're doing here mm. with precision data. That's awesome. Jeff, I see you nodding your head the entire way. Let's start with you talking about a um, little bit about your operation and your philosophical approach. You mentioned um, you got a pretty sizable um, farming, ranching operation that uh, that your your family is working towards. So what? How do you approach? Um, how do you approach making it a business, but um, approach conservation decisions as well? Yeah. Thanks, Bob, and. <laughs> I was nodding my head because uh, uh, Kristen has been just an absolute wonderful resource to work with and with Pheasants Forever because um, her philosophy toward data-driven decisions, toward the precision farming angle, which she knew well, as she said in a previous life, having worked in that space and then now incorporating all that into her work with the PF. Um, so when we first met, uh, I, I basically took the point of view where I, I mentioned to Chris and I said, our philosophy here and uh, has been for a number of years uh, to get better before we get bigger. There are a number of uh, very sizable operations, uh, you know, large, large acre operations in this part of the state and in, in many surrounding states as well. And, you know, they do a lot of things well, uh, you know, but again, I, I think if you look at an integrated program, with crops and livestock, if you look at the soil health uh, goals that you might have and the conservation goals, it, it comes back to having the data to, to make those decisions and, and have a basis of it. So about 10 years ago, we made a conscious decision to, to be as cutting edge as we could in uh, precision farming practices uh, and that means not only the, the equipment to do those things and gather the data, but to have the software 
and the analytics to uh, to use those metrics to make better decisions. And that is a work in progress. We're still uh, we haven't figured all that out yet, but but we work hard. And Kristen has seen a lot of that that data. So because we have such a sizable database on our soils, our production methods, and and what that can mean, especially from a, a return on investment point of view. Once you figure out a lot of the Kristen and I worked last year, uh, she did a tremendous amount of work to uh, to come up with a precision profitability analysis uh, through Pheasants Forever and uh, also an SDSU program, uh, Every Acre Counts. And so I have right now a huge amount of data. Kristen, I haven't gotten through all of that yet. I, I apologize. But um, we <laughs> data and said, where is our marginal land at? You know where where could we where would we have to have mm -hmm. you know just an extreme yield to even break even on these marginal soils? And I want to back up to uh, Kristen your statement earlier when you were speaking. You talked about incremental gains with conservation and soil health. I cannot stress that enough. In this is a very unforgiving part of the world in in, in our state here in South Dakota, and so you cannot make whole, wholesale changes. You have to you have to play small ball, look for the incremental changes, but can be very very effective. And so what Kristen and I did, along with Pheasants Forever, is to identify a, a whole bunch of marginal areas, and then set those aside, you know, into uh, grassland restoration and stuff. And the numbers were so compelling. I mean, I, I looked at the the initial data we had, and I just said, uh, as an ex banker, I'm I'm remiss to have not noticed that. Uh, this is land that, that is better suited for other purposes. Hmm. So uh, I could talk all day about that, but it's been a very effective analysis for us here uh, in our in our operation. Financially, it, um, I'm assuming it means you're putting a lot less into those acres, saving some time, and then ultimately that produces greater profitability overall. I don't want to I don't want to put words in your mouth, but explain what you mean when you talk about incremental gains and how. I, you, you talked about how startlingly apparent that was. Yeah. With the data we have on our on our fields, we identify a number of different zones, which is called management zone based, uh, through a company called Field Reveal. That's that's just one. There are many different softwares available to agriculture in our country and in North America, but if you use that system. You basically say to yourself, in the best areas of this field, um, I will put more inputs on. I'll do a better job of feeding the plant, and I'll, I'll be more selective about putting basically a racehorse plant in that area. And in more marginal areas, I'll use a more modest plant, maybe a lesser cost seed, less inputs, which are basically you know going through the soil and maybe uh, off into the water runway and not doing any good. So once you take that approach, you can basically look at um, generating a lower yield, say, in a poor part of the field. But because you've lowered your input costs as well, it, it's actually more profitable per acre. And I would add, along with all of that, when you really get serious about the parts of that field that are best suited for, for habitat or for forage crops or cover crops, uh, the return on investment analysis that we have is very compelling to just say, yes, we should be planting more of those areas uh, and utilizing the wildlife and, and uh, promoting soil health by not trying to uh, produce commodity crops on them. So Kristen, this question is for you because you deal with uh, 
uh, you know, you work with farmers across your region. And I picked up on something that I'm curious about. As, as both of you and Jeff talked about your decision to enroll in conservation practices, CRP in general, the first thing you pointed towards was soil health. You both did that. And then you t- also talked um, wildlife benefits and water quality were, were mentioned, but soil health was like the top of the pyramid. And you think about, you know, I, I write all kinds of stuff for Pheasants Forever. And I, I'd go to wildlife benefits first, right? That's where my, my mind is. The general public looks at CRP and thinks water quality first. What, what my long-winded question for you is when, when you talk to farmers, ranchers, producers, is it pretty consistent that what pulls them into conservation at the top of the pyramid is indeed soil health? Yeah, I would say it is soil health um, because they're farmers and soil health across their whole field is what they're concerned about. And so if you can drill down just like variable rate technology, we're going to be drilling down on those marginal lands. And what can we do for that land to bring it back into a more um, self-sustaining per se environment? Um, What can we do to fix that soil? What's wrong with it now, whether it's saline or it's compacted or different Mm. things like that? What we want to fix that. and so I think that's the mentality that they have. Let's try to rehab it, whether it's for 10 years or re-enroll it for 20 years. Um, can we get that soil back to um, just being more productive in the future? So I, mm. that's always their forefront on it. Not, I shouldn't say always, but top two, I would say, mm-hmm. is the soil health. Does that, that feel true to you as well, Jeff? Yeah, it does. Um, in 1998, we... Um, uh, we enrolled uh, our first uh, piece of land in CRP, 160-acre tract, and it um, it was prone to uh, to being uh, too wet, oftentimes in the wet years, a lot of low land, a fair amount of trees, and <laughs> interestingly enough, my uh, my dad and my grandfather had both mentioned to me that that piece of land they believed was one of the poorest on our entire farm unit which was much smaller uh, back in the day. Hmm. And so when we looked at CRP enrollment on that, it just, it looked like the best use. I'm, I'm listening to my family members who they believed it was very poor soil and, you know, it just needed to be put to a different use and, and uh, seeded down, see what happened with it. So fast forward after uh, 15 years of being enrolled, that piece being enrolled in CRP, we then started applying the, uh, you know, the different management system that I alluded to, the MZB-based stuff, where we um, identified the different zones and started farming them differently. Turns out it was one of the best pieces of land on the place. <laughs> um, but the decision to put it in CRP hmm. uh, many years prior still worked out really well because it turned out to be a mecca for the wildlife. I mean, absolutely uh, one of our best hunting areas over that period of enrollment. And then we had contiguous land around it, which really promoted, you know, having a sizable land base with that as an anchor for the wildlife. So we really checked a lot of boxes with that particular piece. It was the best use for it, probably at the time. Uh, turned out to be a, a diamond in the rough where uh, after we had the data that we needed. Hmm. And we did take it out of CRP, but we, we've gone to other areas that are probably better suited uh, than that one was, even though mm-hmm. it, it still turned out pretty well for us. Which is, Kristen, one of the 
functions of CRP is it can be used to enroll for 10 to 15 years, revitalize the soil, go back into farming, and then come back into the program as a way to constantly rotate it. And rotating CRP so it's you know early successional habitat, that's a positive too. So whether it's healing soil or creating fresh acres for pheasants, deer, ducks, I mean, that is a, um, a, a wise use of the program for, for farmers, isn't it? Yes. Yep. And it's great too. I mean, for one of the reasons we used it was erosion control. Um, that water just keep going through there and going through there. And it was just going to keep washing that dirt down our creek. And so it was a great mm. way to get that stopped. There's, there's a lot of purposes for it and mm -hmm. just finding, finding that for it. So Jeff, when I'm assuming you, you have a ton of friends and that are farmers and ranchers like you, what, um, if you were to have a candid conversation about misconceptions, things that the, the average person would be hesitant about enrolling in CRP or going to the USDA and, and making an offer, what would you tell folks is like, well, that's more mythology than reality. What, anything that comes to mind that you, you would um, offer advice to farmers and ranchers out there listening? Yeah, you know, again, from a from a financial point of view, uh, over the last few years with the with the bump up in rental rates, um, it, it's you know, there's no doubt it's been a driver for uh, for many landowners, uh, not only that are active producers too, but absentee landowners. The um, the attraction has been there. I mean, for them to to look give the program a hard look, so that that financial incentive is uh, is attractive. The advice I would say, uh, Bob and Kristen, you know, would be for any producer to maybe not just look at it as a revenue stream, even though the rental rates are, are pretty attractive, maybe not with current commodity prices, but over the last couple of years, it's, it's been a good draw. I mean, I, I would just ask them to say, look at your entire operation, look at any enrollment in CRP as as just another piece in the puzzle. I mean, it kind of have a plan where you want to be at to, to promote wildlife, to do the right thing for soil health, and, and then make sure that, that that piece gives you some incremental gains so that you can build it out and maybe introduce other best practices across your farm, even if it doesn't mean enrolling more in CRP. There, there's so many one-off, two-off uh, avenues that can be explored once you've said, you know, we see the value that uh, uh, this this type of enrollment can do for us. It's it's uncanny how what you're talking about is what I've heard out of our precision ag and farm bill biologists, as well as our government affairs folks. You know, it's like it's, USDA has a whole suite of conservation programs, right? CRP's a piece of the puzzle. Um, Equip can be a piece of the puzzle. CSP can be a piece of the puzzle. It's not it's not one thing that's a silver bullet. It's taking a look at the entire operation, all the different pieces of property because they're all unique in the different conservation programs that, you know, might fit. You know, it goes back to that slogan that we have whole historically used, farm the best, conserve the rest. And conserving them um, can take on a 
a, a wide array of different options. Kristen, I, I see you shaking your head. As a precision ag specialist, you you know soup to nuts, the acronym soup of of conservation programs. That that resonated with you too, didn't it? Yeah, it does. There's just so many options out there for guys to try. Um, it just does. It's not limited to just a one. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about, you know, we've talked in generalities about CRP, continuous general, but then also other conservation programs. I'm, I'm curious how many different practices and which, how many different programs each of you have um, enrolled in your operations. And I know the scale is, is different to say scale of your operation, but Jeff, maybe, maybe you could start this part of the dialogue, like how many different CRP practices and conservation acronyms do you have uh, in the puzzle on the uh, Lochner family farm? Yeah. Oh, thanks. Uh, so my first exposure was in 1998, again, when we enrolled um, that first piece of land in CRP. And I will say for your audience, um, our operation was probably a little late to the game uh, with many of the uh, the government programs for conservation that you spoke about. I mean, we believed here for, for a lot of years when I farmed with my dad and stuff, you know, we thought we were trying to do the right thing with crop rotation, you know, keeping weed in the rotation, other small grains, as Kristen alluded to, um, you know, using, utilizing fall forage with the livestock and and so when we put the land in CRP, that was the first. Uh, we were then enrolled for, um, I believe, five years in the first conservation stewardship program, now known by a different name, and I'm not can't remember what that is right now. But uh, so we were we were the first operation in our county, the only operation in our county that participated in the first sign up with that, and uh, that was an interesting experience because we were subject to a lot of scrutiny. And probably didn't do things the way you know the program had, had originally come from Washington on, but we were still implementing a lot of best practices and just needed to understand how you know the the nuances of of that program. So we did the the CSP program, and then fast forward a few years, um, you know, just to the the work with pheasants forever and uh, grassland restoration and some things we'd done a couple other smaller scale things uh, in that regard, but then uh, to uh, join in with Kristen and and the Pheasants Forever team to, to formalize a lot more of that uh, in terms of how it impacted our more marginal land was that brings us up to, to present. So that, that's kind of a lengthy answer too, but that's, that's our track record. Yeah. Yeah. Christian, what do you have on your property? Which programs? Um, so we have continuous CRP. Uh, we also have general CRP. We have um, game fish and parks tree program. Hmm. Um, we have, uh, we're not enrolled in it anymore, but when we first started, um, we were in the CSP program for five years on one piece, um, on some new, on 600 new acres that we're farming, um, we're going to be enrolled in CSP next year. And then we also put in for the equip cover crop initiative program that they came out with this spring. So we'll be rotating those back and forth. Yeah. You both have quite, um, the puzzle approach to the, the operation that that's really cool. Um, and then the, the saline soils initiative is something unique to South Dakota that I'll, I just want to shout out on this podcast. Like it's, it's so incredibly innovative and effective that 
you know, it, it's it's something that if you are listening and you're in South Dakota, please talk to South Dakota Game Fish and Parks or Pheasants Forever biologists about that opportunity too, because it's it it's one of those for me that's so easy to talk about because it's visual, right? Anybody that's driven through the Dakotas and sees those corners in their chalky white, it's like right there is a great place to enroll in a conservation program because you're not going to be able to farm anything in that salty soil. And if you can plant that to grass and get that corner enrolled, it's amazing, you know, the wildlife benefits and back to the top of the pyramid from a farmer's perspective, the, the soil benefits that are produced really quickly through that program. Uh, last question before we go to final thoughts. You, you both have talked a little bit about um, wildlife. And I think, you know, it's, it's important, you know, particularly with our audience, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever listeners, um, I'm curious how quickly when you've enrolled some of these conservation programs, how quickly you've seen a wildlife response on your property. And, you know, we, we talk about, you know, I talked at the intro, how CRP numbers move up and then it's almost a mirror image when you look at harvest numbers, you know, the, the height of the program 07 and 08 is the height so the height of CRP acres is also like a 60 year high in bird harvest in North Dakota and South Dakota and Minnesota, you know, and you, so you can see it in big picture trends, but can you see it in a micro scale on your own property? Like when you enroll, how quickly do you see more ducks, more turkeys, more pheasants, more whitetails? more monarch butterflies. How immediate does that happen? And we'll, we'll, we'll start with Jeff. Go ahead and answer that, Jeff. Yeah, over, over the years where we have, um, you know, have converted some of that land back to with the CRP and uh, uh, with some other uh, grassland restoration things, which we did independent of, of Pheasants Forever, it, it really changed how we viewed that entire ecosystem, if you will, in that particular area of our farm. Uh, and to the immediate question or the immediate answer probably would be, I mean, if we um, got grass established in the fall, I mean, the next spring, you would see some movement, especially if pheasants do there and stuff. Uh, and then that kind of drove our decision-making about, do we want to put a small grain next to some of those newly established grassland areas, you know, a, a small grain to help out the birds for feed there and stuff. And so it just kind of changed how we mm. approached everything. But yeah, it, it's, um, if you, if you do those things, I, I would say get, uh, barring uh, flooding conditions or something right away in the spring, you know, to affect how the, how the hens are moving around, uh, you, you're going to have birds in that area as soon as there's enough cover for, uh, you know, for, to provide aerial uh, disguise. Yeah, you're you're speaking directly to to what I was thinking in my mind. Like, uh, Kristen, um, there's three million acres available right now in the CRP general signup, mm -hmm. and you know whether you're talking about quail in southern part of the United States or you're talking about pheasants in South Dakota, the pheasant capital of the country, these these birds can respond like in the matter of of a year. 
and yeah. a three million acre opportunity. It's like it, it, like people. I think if you spend too much time on social media, people lose hope. Right? They're like, oh, the right. bird numbers are just terrible. It's like, right. folks, we have three million acres of opportunity right now. And it doesn't take much with a mild winter and a nice spring and a little grass. These yep. birds can explode. Have you seen that happen on your farm? Yeah, I can reciprocate just what Jeff said. Um, you know, we planted our, we plant some in the spring and the fall. Um, and this last opening uh, 2021 season, we went out with our kids on just, we walked about 150 yards into our CRP and birds just started flushing. And I had this mm. like, oh my goodness moment. <laughs> my husband's like, shoot, shoot. And like, it was probably like five to 10 seconds, but it like caught me off guard because there was, I have not seen 50, 60 birds flush consecutively within 30 seconds. And then we'd walk a little bit and there'd be more coming. Our German short hair, mm. he had no idea what to do or where to go. Or <laughs> he was just like, why, what's happening? Where are all these birds coming from? So it, yeah, within a year, we've seen just the huge oh. amount of wildlife come back in and just all these different types of birds, blue jays and everything. So it's been really fun to, to watch that grow. So, yeah, it's it's definitely almost immediate once you get a good stand going out there. But with those 3 million acres, I'm sure Matt Morlock's going to be calling me after this podcast airs and telling me I have a lot of work to do. So. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, it sounded like you wanted to chime in. Well, I was just going to add, uh, Kristen, if, if you have that type of bird population at your farm every year, I promise you I won't send my five brother-in-laws who, who mysteriously show up every year. <laughs> I will not send them to your place, okay? You, you have my assurance on that. But, uh, yeah. I, uh... Well, with my track history, there'll still be some birds left there. <laughs> okay. Well, as we uh, round the corner, I'm going to ask each of you for your closing thoughts. But before I do that, I want to remind folks that uh, National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic coming up March 11th, 12th, and 13th in Omaha, Nebraska. Mm -hmm. March 11th, also the date that the CRP general sign-up closes. However, you um, we have another opportunity for the Grassland CRP. That sign-up begins April 4th through May 13th. You can go to National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, sit down with one of our biologists in the Habitat Help Room. We'll pull up a satellite image onto a computer and look at your property one-on-one -on -one with you and talk to you about different programs, federal, state, or local that you might qualify for, including that grassland CRP and other continuous CRP practices at National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. And then here's an invitation from Mr. Hunt, Ang, Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook, Hank Shaw, who is the keynote speaker at the National Banquet on Saturday night, March the 12th. Here's Hank. Hey, everybody. Join me. I'm Hank Shaw, author of five different cookbooks focused on fish and wild game, including pheasant, quail, cottontail, as well as the website Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. I'm going to be at the National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic coming up in Omaha, Nebraska on the weekend of March 11th. I'm super excited to be doing a seminar on how you can get more out of your upland game birds. And I'm also going to be cooking some awesome 
pheasant and quail dishes that you can sample on the cooking stage at Pheasant Fest. And at the main banquet, I'll be delivering a talk called Drumstick Diplomacy. This is where I'm going to connect my passion for wild foods and upland game bird hunting with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's mission to preserving the future of hunting and the future of habitat for not only the game birds that we chase, but also for the environments themselves. Join me at National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic by picking up tickets at pheasantfest.org. That is pheasantfest, all one word, dot org. See you there. All right. As uh, we close out the podcast, I'm going to go to, to Jeff. Um, the general CRP sign-up happening right now through March 11th. As we talked about, you know, for the last half hour, 40 minutes, um, your farm operation and how conservation fits into the puzzle, the approach to make a family business for you, your wife, and then also for, for, um, for your youngster, your youngest son and, and his wife that are grabbing the torch on the family farm. As you, as we ask, as I ask for closing thoughts and you think about the, um, the, the conversation we've just had, um, what's your closing thought? Any, any specific points you want to hammer home? Well, I'm going to, uh, to just uh, reemphasize when we started the conversation I, I, I had to chuckle about the old uh, terms from, it seems like uh, two centuries ago to call uh, CRP set aside or idle acres. They, they most certainly are not, they're mm. acres and they have to be managed as such. And with all the talk that we have on, on regenerative ag now and the tools that we have available, all the different, the government programs you mentioned, as well as private efforts uh, from not only Pheasants Forever, but a lot of the major environmental groups, uh, Nature Conservancy, the Environmental Defense Fund. I mean, they're, they're working in this space, too. Um, everybody, you know, trying to get down to the farm level, to the land level, and then build out uh, from there. But that, it's so important. Those are active acres. And then also, I would add, uh, as I spoke of earlier, incremental gains are, are key. Things you can, you can work up, build on them, find some success, and l- then look for other ways to... Uh, to enhance your farm unit. Yeah, those are really good points. I mean, we had a conversation just a week ago about, boy, we've been, we did away with the term idle acres and set aside acres related to CRP a decade ago. I mean, we quit using that terminology um, literally 10 years or more ago. And to see it pop up, there was a news story here recently where it popped up again. It's like, gosh. We got to get people to stop using that because it's not true. They're not, they're not idle that those acres that are enrolled in CRP, you know, no matter what lens you're looking through, whether you're you're looking through it as a wildlife conservation organization like ours, it's producing habitat. If you're looking as, um, you know, a soil health expert, CRP is improving soil health, water quality, climate, it's sequestering carbon, you know, it's just, those acres are producing a societal benefit, which is why there's a payment associated with it. It's not, you know, maybe once upon a time in 1985, there was a different perspective, but boy, that's, that has changed such a long time ago. Really well said, Jeff. Um, Kristen, what are, what are your um, final thoughts as we close out this episode? Um, I guess I would just challenge 
um, people to really put the numbers to their marginal acres and take a look at what their yield is versus their input and compare what it would be like without farming those and where they could be at if they enrolled those into a conservation program like CRP. Um, speaking for South Dakota, just in general, there's very few analysis that I've done over 45,000 acres, I think we're at now that show that a whole field is 100% profitable. Like it's mm. very, very rare um, that that happens. So there's a place for conservation on every single farm out there. It's just putting them on the right spot and, and putting them on the right acre. So just stay open-minded about CRP. Um, it, like you said, it's not just an idle lands program. It's doing a lot for your soil, doing a lot for the ecosystem and it's benefiting everybody really. Um, so I guess go out there and enjoy it then too, after you put it in, uh, there's a lot of, you know, it's spending time with your family, going out, getting in the field, shooting a couple of birds. Right. Well, and you both have talked about, it's part of um, the fabric of an approach that leads to keeping your family on the farm. It's part of the puzzle. Right. And, and it uh, stabilizes that income and also creates places where you can have that 60 bird flush like Kristen did uh, um, just a couple seasons ago. I hope it happens again. This fall. <laughs> we all do. We all do. Folks, if, if you're if you're listening um, and you're interested, you own property anywhere in the country. Go to pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org slash CRP. And it'll take you to our find a biologist map and you can type in your zip code and then that'll populate um, all of our biologists around the country. And we have something like 300 biologists. We're the number two employer of biologists in the country behind only the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And they are willing to meet with you. They're hoping to meet with you and, and explore uh, the puzzle approach to your property, because every different farm, every different ranch has different opportunities for conservation and uh, farm the best can serve the rest. Uh, I'm Bob St. Pierre, thanking Jeff and Kristen for sharing their stories with us and reminding all of our listeners to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, everybody. National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic is coming to CHI Health Center, Omaha on March 11th, 12th, and 13th. Join us for puppy and dog training seminars, a youth village for kids, wild game cooking demonstrations, pollinator and wildlife habitat info, hunting gear, and more than 400 unique exhibitors. It's National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic the weekend of March 11th in Omaha, presented by Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, and Federal Premium Ammunition. For tickets, go to pheasantfest.org.